as a child, I was a very introverted child and I really liked reading. I had some chronic illnesses and I often had to stay at home alone. And what would you do at home like for the whole day? Of course you can play, but then you get bored uh, and then you read a lot. So I had a lot of, of those encyclopedia books at home and I read them. So the world was really full of questions and I needed to know all the answers to them. And I think this, this sort of interest, this curiosity is something that anyone as a journalist, as an investigative journalist should have. You're listening to Exposing the Invisible. Interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. My name is Hanna Libokova. I am a Belarusian journalist in exile. I think my work can be divided into several parts. Uh, most of it is public. Uh, this is um, these updates, information that they publish about Belarus, um, pieces of analysis, uh, commentary. Uh, these are these con- constant updates on Twitter or any other forums that uh, help me explain the situation in Belarus to the international audiences. This is also the work for the Atlantic Council. This is more analytical stuff. Uh, non-public briefings, um, non-public uh, strategic sessions, uh, and again, updates, analysis for um, Congress staffers, and, and so on. It's mostly about the American audience and policy make- makers. Um, I also consult, I also help with recommendations of policies. And most recently, I've been a consultant to a number of independent media outlets. Uh, most of them are now, now in exile, and we did a great project together um, focusing on how to expand their audiences inside Belarus, especially those non-political audiences. I think I've always been interested in uh, journalism, in writing, but more importantly, in the service, you know, in serving your country, in helping your community, in reaching out to people, in explaining things to people. Journalism is one of the forms of how you do that. I was actually trained, uh, my first degree was in art history, funnily so, uh, and I really liked art and I studied art and I was an art curator. And then in 2010, we had yet another revolution in Belarus and we had this wave of protests. It was um, the presidential election and I traveled back from Poland to Belarus to be there, to be on the streets. I was really young. And then I saw the important work that journalists did. Of course, there were protests, there were repression, there were arrests of people. And then I saw how journalists help, you know, by covering the, the situation, by showing to the world what happened in, uh, in Belarus back then. And I decided that maybe I should switch, maybe I should do more as a journalist because it's more dangerous. Um, that's why it's more important. That was my logic. So I decided to become a journalist. I started working at this, the only independent TV channel, Belsa TV, based in Warsaw, Poland. And I got an offer from from them. So that was my first experience in journalism. And then I switched, uh, I sort of followed this path and I started doing investigations.
So my first investigation that I made, uh, a serious one, was at Radio Free Europe, and it focused on um, this electronic toll collection system in Belarus that was implemented by the government. And there were many questions about corruption because that contract that that company uh, that was this Austrian company offered and finally got was uh, 300 million. uh, And there was basically no competition. Moreover, there was a politician, former Austrian vice chancellor, who was a consultant for that Austrian company And what was interesting, he was in Belarus during the election of 2010, and he was an observer. And I remember I interviewed him, and that gentleman told me in an interview that the election was free, democratic, and transparent. And he denied any allegations that he was involved in lobbying that Austrian company interest in Belarus, but it was clear that there was a connection. So I managed to expose him. There were also other countries involved. I wrote about Poland, about the Czech Republic, and all these businesses that that company had there. And we published that story in the Belarusian branch, uh, Beltol, the, the, the system, the electronic collection toll system, threatened me with a defamation case. And uh, we did not take down the story because we were right and we had proofs we had evidence of everything that i wrote so after all they didn't really do anything because i think they realized that we had um, proofs we had evidence but there was like a lot of harassment and i was also scared i was also very young Um, but then i had this newsroom i had my colleagues behind me who supported me and that was really exciting that was really interesting And I felt that that was quite an achievement and something that I can do as a profession. In 2020, I was in Belarus and I followed the start of the the beginning of the revolution, basically since the spring, uh, when we had COVID and the government abandoned people and Lukashenko even laughed at people who died of COVID Um, and I think we nobody really predicted this eruption this sort of escalation this protest uh, this uh, anger among Belarusians and and that was something I saw and I had the chance to travel across the country before the election in August 2020 and I saw how much this society changed. I basically rediscovered my country and I traveled to the smallest villages and towns in Belarus and people there were telling me, oh, we want our rights to be respected. And when you hear people saying about human rights being in this really small village, not about their salaries, not about taxes, but about human rights, it's it's something that you, well, gives a lot of hope. And Lukashenko, the leader of the country that was elected in 1994 in the first and last free and fair election in my country, he did not want to give away power. And he started terrorizing people, torturing them uh, with the help of his security forces. People were killed, shot, dead on the streets. Thousands, actually tens of thousands of people were arrested. And uh, now we have more than 1,500 political prisoners in Belarus. 
We have a Nobel Peace Prize laureate in jail. We have basically the whole country in jail right now. We have politicians, musicians, activists, writers, middle class, tech people, factory workers, journalists imprisoned, and this is state terror. Now I am less engaged, I'm, I'm less involved in investigative journalism per se, but I do some other things, right? Because of the revolution, because something else at that point and since then basically became more important to me, I think. Something where I feel I can make more difference um, and bring about change. So this is my work. There is another motivation that keeps me, forces me keep going, is that my friends are in jail. I have a really close friend, Katerina Andreeva, with whom we actually did an investigation uh, in 2019, right before the revolution. And she's been jailed in the autumn of 2020, at first for two years, then next year, her sentence was prolonged. She got another eight years. So I feel that I cannot stop because she she's in jail and one of my missions, one of my main goals uh, is to tell the world about her. I, I'm not saying that I have the right to be their voice, but I'm trying to help them, to help the world know about them and change their situation. And I think another motivation is it's so painful to see how my country is being taken away, first by Lukashenko, the dictator, now by Putin, another dictator. And this is something I don't want to happen. And that's the least I can do to spread information, to consult, to lobby, to advocate, and to constantly, constantly, um, I guess, fight and, and, and update information about the country. The most important tool at the moment, you know, for this work I've been doing um, is, um, I think, interviews and speaking with people, explaining to them um, the situation. And I've been also writing a book. So interviews, as you imagine, are really important for that. And you want to go as deep as possible into how and what people felt how they went through all of these experiences and ask them as many details as possible because you want to present the situation as it happened and, and so other people would feel it. Then, of course, you have to verify, you have to check some information, you have to fact check that. And this is where all of these investigative uh, tools that I learned before are really helpful. So even if you left fully or just for a moment investigative journalism, it would never leave you. Uh, even now, even if the work I've been doing now, which is not directly investigative journalism, but, but still. I also focus a lot on, on propaganda. So this is where um, 
what I learned before has been really helpful. So I monitor, I collect, I analyze some uh, Russian propaganda, pro-regime propaganda, and their disinformation tools, uh, and especially on social media. Um, so this, uh, I think, another sort of um, uh, work that, that I've been doing. Some things become more important when you face such challenges as we face in Belarus, right? When the country is losing sovereignty and might lose independence. And when you just cannot go back, right? Because it's dangerous for you. So so other things become more important. And you do not define your work only as a profession or only as like one small, small thing. You do everything to help, be it journalism, be it human rights initiatives, civil society, politics, advocacy, and so on. And you just have this uh, mission, whatever, however you define it, and that becomes more important, that becomes the most important thing. And ob- objectivism here is having less emotions, but more uh, rationalism. I was often too emotional, and that undermines my expertise, my analysis, and it becomes less objective. So this is something I want to avoid. And I think there were things that perhaps I said were more radical than I expected them to be, especially when the war started, when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began. I think we all became really emotional. So I prefer not to be that emotional because I, I am an analyst and I'm a journalist, so I need to be more objective in that sense. I, I think that that's a lot of responsibility, you know, in that, in a way, because what if I say is wrong, actually? What if this is not a good policy? What if this is not what my country needs? So that's a, that's a lot of responsibility, and you cannot make a mistake because your mistake can lead to something um, not really good, not really helpful, and you have to check all the time and you have to be really careful you have to think twice and you have to ask other people, other analysts, you have to brainstorm what, what you can do, how, how, how to better address this problem. Uh, but then, yeah, but then if you publish this and this uh, really changes something that brings a lot of satisfaction and this sense of accomplishment. I left Belarus in 2020 after the election and it was really painful. So I went to Kiev, to Ukraine, and I worked from there. And one of my closest friends got arrested and the KGB um, and different other security forces departments interviewed him for eight hours. And one of the questions they asked him was about me, where I'm based and what I do. So it became clear that I could not go back. And in 2021, I found out about the criminal case against me and that I was put on the wanted list. And the criminal case I know about says that I attempted to seize power in an unconstitutional way, which is punishable by up to 12 years in prison. And that's a source of major jokes, of course, because, well, how would you seize power by Twitter or by writing as a journalist? 
it's um, I think we all laugh at that. But at the same time, being being on the wanted list means that you are a target. I might feel safe or safer because I'm in a safe country. But I know that I'm also followed here and my colleagues are also followed here. And moreover, I know that people close to me, my family is not safe back in Belarus. So that's something that affects, I think, me. And I and I, I cannot say that it affects my work because I don't self-censor my work. But at the same time, there is always this second thought. Maybe I should not write that. Um, and then I have to stop thinking this and, uh, you know, just continue doing what I do because that's also important. So let me tell you one funny moment. I remember when I just relocated, when I just left Belarus, and I had these PTSD symptoms, which I was not aware about, because I could not imagine that something like that would happen to me. I remember I didn't have emotions. I could not cry. So like I, I just didn't feel anything. And that was really scary in a way. I was okay. I worked. But then I was like a machine. And then after several months, I remember I watched this video and from Minsk and I saw the protests and I saw people being happy and then security forces arresting them, chasing them. And I felt that, oh, maybe I should cry. I felt like, oh, I need to cry. I need to feel emotions. Like I really missed the emotions. <laughs> and I remember like I, I just almost, almost cried at that moment. And then some news came that something really important happened. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't have time for that. So I need to work. So <laughs> that was not right. Now I allow myself to have emotions, to feel emotions. I even allow myself to go on vacation. I think it's just something that I realized that I need to take care of myself more because otherwise I was not able to uh, support my friends to support those people who need uh, the work I've been doing. But what I want to say is that we all feel frustrated. We all feel scared for different reasons. What's what's even more painful? What's even more frustrating is again my friends in jail. Most recently, one of my close friends, Igor Wosik, who is a prominent blogger. He is an RFRL consultant, and he is like the genius of the internet. He had one of the most popular blog in Belarus, and he was arrested in 2020. And he really suffers in jail. And he was on a hunger strike for more than 40 days. And most recently, he attempted suicide in jail, and that was the second time when he did that. And I often sit and cry, asking myself, why on earth I can't be more influential, have a stronger voice, do more, change, help them. And then I'm like, okay, Hannah, so once you, when you sit and cry here, you do, you cannot do your work. So get up and work. You don't have time for that. This, you know, I cannot call it motivation because these are people in jail. Like, how can it be called motivation? I cannot betray them. I cannot just say that, oh, I can do, cannot do this anymore. So what's really hard is that in a way you don't really live for yourself because you live for that mission that you have. 
But on the other hand, this is not sad because this is a really important purpose and goal in life. And then it also brings this satisfaction that you do something important and you are trying to help. Of course, you might not be successful enough yet, but then you are trying and you just don't give up and you are helping those people who you care about. been listening to the second season of Exposing the Invisible, a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from SIDA. Interview and production by Mariam Abourezi. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Iskander, Laura Ranka, Lika Plucher, Marek Tyshinsky, and Christy Lang.